Philippians chapter 2. In the story, this week I came across the story of of a man in a remote village in India. I'm going to try to pronounce his name. I'm probably going to mispronounce it. But his name was Dashrath Manji. He lived in a remote village in India. He worked in a coal mines in the region. And one day as he was going out to work, later that day his, his wife was seeking to bring him lunch and she was hiking across the mountain to bring him lunch. Well, she had a tragic accident. On a, she slipped and fell. And that accident ended up leading to her death. One of the complicating factors was that her injury was actually a treatable injury, but because of the remoteness of the village, they were not able to get the medical care that she desperately needed. And so as a result, she tragically passed away. Well, the same night that she died, her husband Manji decided that no one else from the village need ever to suffer the same fate. So he set out to carve a path through the, the Gelhor Hills so that the village would have easier access to medical attention. So with nothing more than a hammer and a chisel, that he, sold, he sold three goats that his family owned. He sold those to purchase the hammer and the chisel. With nothing more than those tools, he began working on a path that would end up being 360 feet long, 30 feet wide, and in some places, because of the, the rocky terrain and the hilly, the hilly terrain, some places it was 25 feet deep, cutting through the mountainside. For most of the task, he labored alone. Early on, many ridiculed and mocked him, saying, this was, this was a foolish task. What are you doing? You can't, sit, you can't possibly hope to accomplish this. They said he was a lunatic that his task was foolish and impossible. But he labored on, driven by, by love of his wife and her memory, but then also for love of the people of his village, that they may have better access. And all told, it took him 22 years to carve out this path with nothing more than that hammer and that chisel. And he labored on 22 years to carve out that mountain pass. And though the road he built, it was, it was only 360 feet long, right? That's, that's not a, a, an insanely long length of road. But it connected the village to another road that reduced the traveling from a distance of 34 miles down to 9 miles. And a much safer 9 miles at that, thereby providing the village with easier access to supplies, to medical help, to just what all the things that come from being better connected to the other villages. But 22 years, for the most part by himself, ridiculed and mocked for one purpose, that others might not suffer as he had suffered. Today, the whole region benefits from his labor, and, and he is remembered as a hero for the task, for what he accomplished, his decades of self-sacrifice. He was a man who set aside his own desires, he set aside his his own life for the sake of serving others. 
He chose to prioritize the needs of others, even when they did not see the value of what he was providing. And so he labored on in that task. Well, as we've been looking at the book of Philippians in chapter 2 and the example that Jesus Christ himself gives us, we've, we've begun, we have begun examining three humility principles that Paul presents to us from the life of Christ that mirror the commands that he has given earlier in the chapter. Last week we saw the first humility principle, that humility is selfless, it is not selfish. Humility is selfless, not selfish. And we saw this from Philippians 2 verse 6, which says this, who, this is talking about Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we talked about how that means that Jesus did not view his position as something to be used for his own selfish purposes, but rather, in humility, selflessly gave himself for the benefit of others. So that mirrors the command back in Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So Jesus Christ selflessly set aside His own position. Humility is selfless and not selfish. Well, today we are going to see two more principles of humility that, that Paul gives us. The first is that humility prioritizes others. And then second is that humility serves others. Humility prioritizes others and humility serves others. First, the prioritization of others. Look with me at Philippians 2 beginning in verse 7. After saying that, Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't something to be held on to, to be abused for his own selfish purposes. He goes on to say in verse 7, But on the contrary, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. We talked last week about that phrase that he emptied himself. That's, that's where we left things off last week. We talked about how the selflessness of Christ drove him to empty himself. He didn't seek to use his position for his own selfish gain, but rather made himself nothing. And we talked about what that meant for Jesus to empty himself. And if you want to hear the particulars of all that discussion, you can go back and look online at last week's sermon. I'm not going to repeat all of that today. But we're going to remind us of the conclusion that we drew as we considered what that means. It means that he made himself nothing. He lowered himself down. It does not mean that he ceased to be divinity or stopped possessing his attributes. But as the NIV puts it, he made himself of no reputation. He lowered himself he had every reason to remain on the, on the pinnacle of all things as far as his position was concerned. But he lowered himself to the very bottom. From the top of the totem pole to the lowest position. He emptied himself of the external display of his glory and of his majesty to be made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. 
prioritizing the needs of others, valuing others above himself. As we continue our study, as we continue to look at this passage, we we can ask the question, okay, how did he empty himself? We talked about what it means that he emptied himself. Now, Now, how did he actually go about doing that? And the text gives us the answer. It says he emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now let's, let's examine this a little bit closely today. Taking the form of a servant. Now, here we have the same word for form that we found back in verse 6, where it says that he existed in the form of God. We have the same word employed here. When we talked about that word form, we discussed how that word for form refers to being, being able to look upon someone and based upon their appearance, being able to correctly deduce who they truly are in their very being and nature. And so we can ascertain what's, who someone is by their appearance. So in verse 6, we saw that Jesus Christ was clothed in divinity. He was clothed with glory and majesty and power. That's what it means that he was existing in the form of God. He was clothed in majesty and beauty and power. So he existed in the form of God. If we could have seen him, it would have been immediately evident who he was. But now here our text says that that he took on the form of a servant. This is the emptying that is being referred to. This is the making himself nothing. It's the lowering of position. Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. He was divinity of divinity. He was truly God in everything that means Without ceasing to be God, now he adds something to himself, and it is a lowering of his position. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, not born in a palace, not born to royalty, but born to a humble, godly couple, born in the stable and laid in a feeding trough. If someone were to pass by and and see the events unfold there, the conclusion would not have been, wow, now that is a king. That would not have been the conclusion. This this is a God-man, no doubt about it. No. That would not have been the conclusion. But rather, we have we have echoes of Isaiah in this passage. When Isaiah said back in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 that it, it says that he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. It's from Isaiah prophesying about the nature of Jesus Christ as he would have come as a man. He didn't come with this great display of majesty and glory as a human being, but rather came simply as a humble servant. This was a humble birth. And as he grew, there's little doubt that he would have been trained in Joseph's trade. He would have been a carpenter, likely building houses. So we see the humility of Christ. 
He came in the likeness of men. He was, he was born. He entered into humanity. It's really a mind-blowing reality. He did not come as a conquering king, but rather he came by assuming the lowest possible position on earth. Because that word for servant, it says that, that he emptied himself by becoming, taking on the form of a servant. That word for servant should really be better translated as slave. It is the word for slave. Now, we do need to think carefully about that word. You know, as we consider the word slave, it's almost, it's almost become a word that our culture has. It's almost a, a taboo word even to think about in our culture today because of the history of slavery in the United States. And that is a, a, a regrettable history. That is a history that it is, that is a, 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 a terrible history. Words can't even begin to describe the, the awfulness of slavery in America. But slavery operated differently in the ancient world than it did as we think of slavery in our day. And so we, we do not want to read our American experience of slavery back into the biblical text. For the Jews, slavery was not something that was permanent, but it was a means to pay off extreme debt. And God's Old Testament law had provisions and standards for ethical slavery. And that might seem like a a bizarre thing to us. It might sound like an oxymoron. It might sound foreign and offensive to us. But we have that presented for us in the biblical text. But in the Roman world, there was slightly different connotations for the idea of slavery. A slave was the lowest possible position that you could hold. In fact, a Roman slave could not even hold Roman citizenship because of their slavery. And so to emphasize the point of this passage, I was reading one commentator discussing the the concept of slavery in the Roman mindset. And he wrote, quote, It is the shame associated with slave status and not the restriction of personal liberty that the ancient writers consistently emphasize. Thus, slavery is the most shameful and wretched of states. And then this commentator went on to conclude, the notion of a being that was equal, of equal rank to God, willingly taking the form of a slave, would have struck the residents of Roman Philippi as abject folly. A being of equal rank with God taking the form of a slave would have struck the residents of Roman Philippi as abject folly. I mean, think about it. The creator of all things, clothed in majesty and beauty and glory and power, emptying himself of the outward display of that majesty to take on the form of a slave. I tried to think of different illustrations to help us grasp the weight of what, a, of what actually happened there. And everything that I could think of just pales in comparison to that. It just simply does not do it justice. But think for a moment, what if someone like, like the Queen of England with all of her pomp, with all her regalness, with all of her, everything that, that people think about the, the properness of the queen and, and the, 
the respect that is given and all the things that surround her as, as she is the Queen of England. But what if she voluntarily, uh, if she volunteered to clean regularly, clean out the porta potties of something at a county fair? It's the Queen of England. Like, you don't belong cleaning out the porta potties at a county fair, right? That, that would be our reaction. Like, we would recoil in horror and shock. I mean, even the thought of us ourselves being the ones to clean out the porta potty at a county fair is kind of repugnant to us. But if it's the Queen of England, if someone of her stature, if someone of her standing, as she's royalty, if she would lower herself for such a task as that? Now think about that, now multiply that by a million times, and we still do not even get close to what Jesus Christ did by setting aside the outward display of His glory and His beauty and taking the form of a slave entering into humanity. That illustration just simply does not do it justice. We still have not yet begun to understand what it was that Christ did. Though he existed in the form of God, he made himself nothing, lowering his position to the very bottom, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. In humility, he prioritized others. He set others above himself. Again, this corresponds back to the command that we have back in Verse 3, where Paul wrote that to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And that is what Jesus Christ did when he emptied himself and lowered himself down to that lowest position. This is the natural flow of what humility does. It's the natural flow. First, he refused to take advantage of his own position, refused to do it selfishly, but rather opts to lower his own position and view others above himself, prioritizing their needs above his own. It's a natural result of thinking of others. You know, I came across this definition of humility this week, and this really is a it's an excellent definition that really helps us understand this whole passage and all of what Christ accomplished and how we are to emulate. But the quote goes like this. It says, Humility is not thinking meanly of myself, but meanly means to be thinking lowly or thinking you're degrading myself. Humility is not thinking meanly of oneself, but rather it is not thinking of self at all. It's not thinking of self at all. Humility is not saying to myself, oh, I'm worthless. I'm a nobody. I'm, I'm nothing. Because what is, what's happening when we're saying that? The emphasis is still on me. Right? The emphasis is still on myself. But rather, humility doesn't think of myself at all. It's not even a thought that's entering into my mind. But rather, I'm living my life, prioritizing others. That's the humility that Christ displayed. That's the humility that is described here, prioritizing others. Christ is the perfect example of this principle at play. Speaking of the incarnation of Christ, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ's humility prioritized the value of others. The third principle that we see here is that humility then goes on to serve others. Humility serves others. Look with me at verse 8. Philippians 2 verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see the downward trend of Christ continue, that downward movement. Though he was truly God with everything that that means, he willfully surrendered that status for the sake of prioritizing others, and now here for the sake of serving others. Notice the text says that he humbled himself. This was a voluntary act. This this wasn't a humility that was forced upon him. This wasn't something that that came upon him from the outside. It was an external force upon him that he was humiliated by someone else. But rather, this was a willful choosing to humble himself. He was not forced. He was not coerced. He did not do so begrudgingly, but he did so willingly. He did so with joy. That's what the book of Hebrews says in in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, The founder and the perfecter of our faith, he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. This was a willful act of Christ. And he did so with joy. A willful humbling. How did he do this? How did he humble himself? Again, the text describes that for us. He says he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Now again, this, this, just, this might be a passage that we become so used to that, that we begin to under, it just we forget and, and we miss the, the mind-blowing aspects of what is going on here. God the Son became obedient the creator, the sustainer of the universe was obedient to someone, to something else? How does that work? Like how, how could Jesus Christ do that? He was the one who made the world. He's the one who sustains it, even by his sheer wilt of might. And yet, he has become obedient. Again, this, this would have additionally offended the sensibilities of the Roman people. Because Roman officials, Roman nobles, even if they had men that were in power above them, uh, higher up in the ranks above them, they never referred to themselves as obedient servants. And those of higher ranks never referred to those below them if they still had positions of authority, never called them to be obedient. Even though they would follow orders... They avoided the word obedience because it was not fitting for a Roman noble to be obedient to anyone. And yet here, the God-man has willfully become obedient. Willfully chosen that for himself. Who was he obedient to? Of course, he was obedient to 
God the Father's will. We read that in the garden. He cried out to the Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. The obedience of Christ. This obedience leads him to a particular task, and we find that unfolding for us as we continue on. He was obedient to the point of death, even at death on a cross. Now we find the, the condescension of Christ is complete with his death on the cross. The one who existed in the form of God, clothed with beauty, with glory, with majesty, has now become obedient to the point of death on a cross. A cross. Whenever, whenever we start to think of the crucifixion, it is often that my mind goes to the the physical suffering that was endured on the cross. I don't know if you know medically the, the cause of death on someone as they would hang on a cross. But what would happen would be as they, as they would hang on the cross, it would be increasingly difficult to breathe because of their outstretched arm and, and they would be sagging in the chest. And so it would be increasingly difficult to take a deep breath. I don't know if you've ever hung on like a chin-up bar or something and just hung there and tried to de- breathe deeply. It's, it's difficult. Well, think now, hanging for hours on a cross. As he would hung, hang there, the lungs would begin to fill with his own bodily fluid. In order to get a proper breath, those who would be crucified would have to push or pull themselves up, causing excruciating pain through the nails in the hands and feet. So they would get a breath of air and then they would slump back down. And over time, as the lungs continued to fill, pushing up would become more and more difficult. The heart would have to labor harder and harder to pump blood through the system until the person being crucified either died of, as, of asphy- asphyxiation, suffocating, because they cannot breathe from their own lungs being filled with fluid. Or else their heart would give out from the stress. In some instances, the heart was known to literally burst in the chest under the pressure and the stress of what was being endured on that cross. Jesus Christ became obedient to the point of death, even at death on the cross. But as awful as the physical nature of the death of Christ on the cross is, as horrific as the the physicality of that and the pain and the suffering that was endured, it was not the physical pain that Paul is highlighting. It's not the physical pain that that begins to be the focal point of death on the cross, but rather it is the, the social stigma of dying on a cross. Gods don't die on a cross. Nobles aren't crucified. Crucifixion is something that is reserved for criminals and for slaves. It's not something for the king of the universe. 
Often it was referred to as a slave's death. And countless slaves suffered the fate of crucifixion. And yet, here is Jesus Christ, the one who made the world, the one who sustains it by his very sheer will of might, willingly humbling himself, willingly surrendering his physical body for the most humiliating and painful death imaginable. And the whole point of crucifixion in that culture, the whole point, yes, was to cause physical pain, but beyond that, to cause social pain. That you would be mocked, that you would be ridiculed, that you would be made a public display to publicly shame anyone who would commit the crimes that were leading you to that moment, to publicly shame anyone connected with or associated with that individual. You would be mocked. And Christ endured that willingly for the sake of prioritizing and serving others. Back in verse 4, Paul wrote, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. You see, to see the connection of what's going on here. We're all so prone to think only of ourselves. Looking out for numero uno. I'm number one. We want our own way. We want to position ourselves to further our own purposes, our own agendas. And Paul is pleading with the people, don't go there. Don't go there. We are in a spiritual fight for our lives. If we are to persevere, if we are to press on, if we are to cling to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, if we are to persevere, we need to be united with one another. We need to be unified with one another. We need each other. And if we are to be unified, we cannot be preoccupied with serving merely ourselves. We cannot be preoccupied with advancing ourselves, with seeking to gain our own social status for the sake of ourselves. But rather, we must put on humility. We must be willing to show deference to others, to serve others, thinking not only of ourselves, but of others. So to illustrate that point, Paul gives us the example of Jesus Christ. He had all the social status that anyone could have ever hoped for, existing in the form of God, clothed in beauty and majesty and glory. Not because he worked himself into that position, because of who, by virtue of the very nature of who he is, he is God. And yet, he did not use that for his own selfish gain, as we would be prone to do. But rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. A slave! The lowest possible position. And he became obedient. God became obedient. To the point of death. Death on the cross. 
He did not look for his own interests, but the interests of others. Humility is selfless, not selfish. Humility prioritizes others. Humility serves others. And so we have this urging from the Apostle Paul to have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's not asking us to save the world because we can't do that, but to have that mindset. Willing to set aside our own pursuit of power and influence for selfish reasons. Willing to set that aside to live a life in humble service for others. And so I challenge you, I challenge myself, challenge all of us to consider where do we have influence in our lives? Where do we have any kind of social status, social weight? And how can I, how can you use that position to serve others, to value others, to prioritize others? to have the same attitude of Jesus Christ. And as we live out our lives, we need the grace of God to be helping us in this, do we not? We need His grace. We are so so prone to think of ourselves. We need the grace of God to help us to learn humility, to prioritize others. And so, that is why Later on in this same chapter, just a few verses later, Paul is going to tell us that it's God that works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. We need his grace. We need his working within us. But as we live out our lives, may he give us that grace to live lives of humility. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for the example of Christ. Lord, it is truly mind-blowing that that the God of the universe, your Son, Jesus Christ, would willingly set aside His majesty for the sake of serving others. We find that, that beautiful text, as Jesus Himself said in the Gospel of Mark, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And now, Lord, we are called to emulate Christ, to follow his example. Lord, we find that we cannot do this on our own. We do not have the power in ourselves. We are so prone to to pride. We are so prone to thinking of ourselves. We are prone to the selfishness that is not concerned with others, but is concerned with advancing our own agendas. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to set aside our own desires, our own pursuits. That we would exercise this humility for the sake of of unity. That we might together persevere in our faith. Lord, we do need your grace for this. And so I thank you for the grace that is available to us in the gospel of Christ. 
It is the grace of Christ that provides for us our salvation. It is the grace of Christ that provides for us our sanctification. And Lord, it is the grace of Christ that will provide for us ultimately our glorification when we will stand before you and see you in all of your beauty and your majesty. We look forward to that day. All made possible because of the grace of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful text. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.